right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Rope a Dope podcast. I'm your host, Gene Morgan, and today, a bit of a different episode. We're not going to have a boxer on. We're going to have author Todd Snyder, who is the author of the new book that just came out, uh, Bundini, Don't Believe the Hype, all about uh, the life and times of Drew Bundini Brown, uh, one of Muhammad Ali's closest friends, and... Uh, really, just a really good book. Can't wait to interview him. Uh, really quick recap in this week in boxing. Uh, I think the biggest news is Anthony Joshua destruction of Q-Rep, Q-Rep Pol- Polarov. I mean, Joshua looked amazing in the fight. I don't think he could have done much better. <laughs> and now, uh, can you all tell I just woke up? <laughs> oh, brother. Oh, yeah. But, uh, so now Joshua looks like he's going to be facing, hopefully he's going to be facing Tyson Fury next. I think that's going to be the biggest fight that boxing has to offer next year. They both have mandatories. Wilder, I mean, Fury with Wilder, Joshua with Usyk. But, I mean, just give those guys a lot of money. (laughs) Just sit out one fight. And, or fight each other, and then the winner fights the winner of that fight. It's perfect. It's perfect. Um, you know, Joshua, he's really impressed me. He's really impressed me since losing to Andy Ruiz. He handled himself like like a champion should after a loss. He didn't make any excuses. He came back, and he outboxed Andy Ruiz for 12 rounds. And then in this fight, he really stepped up the pressure on, on Pulverev when he needed to, and he got the job done. And it was it was a tremendous performance. And I'm not going to sleep on him against Tyson Fury. I'm really not. I think that fight is about as 50-50 as a fight can be. Um, so, I yeah, that's, that's just those are my thoughts. Fury-Joshua is the fight to make next year in boxing. Uh, all right, so those are my quick thoughts. Here is really great author... Todd Snyder, he's going to be the guest now. (laughs) Uh, It's a great interview. Hope you all enjoy it. All right. Take it away, Mr. Snyder. Oh, did you guys get really hit last night? Oh, my gosh. We got about four feet of snow out there. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. We got, I'm in uh, Brooklyn right now. We got about, yeah, about the same. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, it's crazy out there. I was out there shoveling my driveway this morning. I was like, man, I need need a snow blower. (laughs) 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 <laughs> who's who's they? Who's shoveling your driveway? No, I was. Oh, you me. were. Oh man. Yeah, well, my son was with me. He's seven years old though. He's having more fun than anything. Like, <laughs> Isn't that great? When you have kids, you can just like force them to do things. You'd be like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's my indentured servant. I made him out, go out there with me. All right. So first of all, Mr. Snyder, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Uh, your book uh, about Drew Bandini, Don't believe the hype. Fantastic, but before we get to all that, I want to talk about you as the person. So, where were you born? I was born in Cowan, West Virginia. It's a oh. small coal mining town in the central region of the state. Okay. Uh, the town itself sort of drives off the coal industry. My, my father was a coal miner, and uh, I grew up, ironically, in a, in a, uh, a family in coal miners. All of my uncles and uh, my grandpa, and most of the men in my family worked in the extractive industry. Hmm. 
but my dad, he was a coal miner by day and a boxing trainer by night. He ran a small gym. Uh, the name of the gym was Lowe's Gym. Okay. And he trained mostly amateur fighters and a couple small level professionals. Wow. Uh, so I grew up around boxing my whole life. Okay. Uh, in, in West Virginia. Uh, wow, that's something we have in common. I too grew up, uh, my family's from northern Minnesota. So we grew up in the Taconite mining industry. Uh, that was our thing. <laughs> Um, and believe it or not, you're not the first guest we've ever had on this podcast to come from West Virginia. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Christy Martin was a guest. Oh, Christy's a friend of mine. Yeah. Oh, my she's dad, the best. Uh, my dad was linked up with Christy. Uh, oh. you know, the night she won the Tough Man contest in Beckley, West Virginia, my dad was working the opposing corner. No so way. Kathy, yeah, a woman named Kathy Cochran from my hometown. Oh. Fought Christy in the championship out. Of course, Christy won. <laughs> <laughs> but my dad knew her way back in the day. Oh, that's crazy. Wow. Wow, small. She's a family friend. Yeah, small world. Yeah, small world. So did you ever uh, enter the ring? I did. Uh, you know, when you grow up and your dad has a boxing gym, you pretty much, you know, don't have a choice. You're, mm -hmm. you're in it from you know, day one. Right. Uh, my dad didn't let me fight as an amateur until I was 16. Uh, huh. He kind of tried to steer me away from it. Believe it or not, he was sort of a protective father. He didn't, you know didn't really want me to follow in his footsteps in the coal mines or in boxing. Yeah, wow. But, you know, I grew up I grew up loving it. So, yeah, I did box in high school, mm -hmm. you know, for a brief period of time. Then I went off to college, and that sort of ended my, my boxing career. <laughs> so, wait, your father, he didn't want you to enter the coal mines either? No, he did not. Wow. Um, you know, he worked in the coal mines for 41 years. He recently wow. retired. And, wow. you know, I watched a lot of the men in my family get hurt or get mm -hmm. sick and doing that kind of work. And, uh he told me from a young age, you know, I was going to be the first in the family to go to college. Mm -hmm. And uh, he didn't give me much of an alternative. He didn't <laughs> that was an order. So he didn't know how to help me, you know, follow that path. But he did encourage me that college was going to be my way out of West Virginia. And, you know, it's advice that changed my life. And now I'm an English professor in upstate New York. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you go to college? I went to college at Marshall University. Okay. You're familiar with the movie We Are Marshall. I am familiar with that movie. <laughs> Yeah, I was there in grad school when they were filming the movie. Wow. Uh, so I went to Marshall University for my bachelor's degree and my master's. Okay. And then I got my PhD at Ohio University, about 70 miles away in Athens, Ohio. Okay. All right. Well, that's nice. So <laughs> I, now, I now teach at Siena College in Albany, New York. I'm oh. an English professor. Okay. So like when you root for football, is it either Marshall or Ohio? <laughs> Marshall is my alma mater. It's okay. my, you know, it's my home state. And how much I love Marshall University. Uh, my wife and I met in Huntington, West Virginia, where Marshall's located. And when we had our first child, we named him Huntington. So that's how big of a Marshall fan <laughs> <thing> I am. <laughs> okay. Man, that's great. So you go to Marshall, and what was your major? I was an English major, mm -hmm. uh, but I knew I wanted to be a writer. Right. Uh, I didn't know if journalism was going to be my path. Mm -hmm. I didn't quite have the courage to, to take that route, so I thought I'll be an English professor and then you know, write about boxing, write about sports. You know, boxing was always my passion. Yeah. And I guess the other side of my scholarly life is hip hop. I teach a hip hop class here at Siena College. Oh no way! I was a, yeah, I was a kid who grew up in the '80s, and I love hip hop. And uh, you're a kid who grew up in the '80s, but in West Virginia, I've never heard of like the great rapper coming out of West Virginia. Well, that's true. Uh, <laughs> but here's the thing: we had MTV. You know, yeah, of course. And everything as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I tell my students all the time, they're like, oh, how did you get into hip-hop in West Virginia? I said, it's hip-hop in Japan. You can travel from New York to West Virginia. Uh, but I founded a thing here at Siena College called Siena Hip-Hop Week. 
Okay. It's an annual celebration where we celebrate the core elements of the culture. And through that, we've got some money through a cross-cultural uh, solidarity initiative. Uh, that we've invited folks like Chuck D., uh, Master Killer from the Wu-Tang, Biz Marquis, Grandmaster Flash, and they come and speak to my students and have dinner with my students, talk about the history of hip-hop. You had Chuck so, D. come up and, to, yeah. wow, that's that's really impressive. Some of these folks have even become uh, friends of mine. You mm. know, I write about it in, in the book. Mm. Uh, Chuck D. was actually the person who gave me the idea to write the book. <laughs> uh, Chuck was in that documentary, Ollie Rap, mm-hmm. where he sort of uh, positions Ollie as the first rapper. Yeah. And we were at dinner, and I said, well, that makes Boudini the first hype man. Yeah. And he said, someone should write a book on Boudini. Yeah. And that was back in 2014. He gave me that advice, <laughs> and I write about that in the introduction to the book. That's so crazy. So, you, <laughs> this is so Chuck D really gave you the idea to write about Bundini Brown. Did you have any notion? Did you have? Um, was that just like a fleeting thought, or did how how come that thought stuck with you? Well, here's the thing: is uh, a lot of these guys when they come to Siena, mm-hmm. they're huge boxing fans as well. Yeah. I remember the year Grandmaster Flash came. Me and him argued about Pacquiao versus Mayweather. He was a big Pacquiao fan. <laughs> I was telling him that he was wishfully thinking that Pacquiao was going to knock out Mayweather. So a lot of a lot of time when I meet these guys, we talk boxing too. Yeah. Same with Chuck D. And my students have watched his documentary Ali Rap. Yeah. And we we were talking Ali at dinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chuck D. And me and my students. And of course, Boudini came up because Boudini is part of what I loved about Ali. Yeah. You know, I love the rhyming. I like the bravado. I like the pre-fight theatrics. <laughs> That's part of what I, as a kid, loved about Ali. Yeah. Being a big hip hop fan, and uh, we talked a lot about Boudini Brown that day. Right. But here's the thing: I would be lying to you if I said the next day I, you know, opened up my laptop and started working on the book. Right. That was 2014. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just an interesting conversation that kind of stuck with me. Yeah. And years later, due to some of my hip hop research, you know, I write about hip hop in my scholarly research, and I also write about boxing. Uh, when the publishers, Hamilcar uh, Publications, was looking for someone to write Boudini's book. They began searching for people who wrote about hip hop and boxing, and mm. my name came up. Actually, they said they googled hip hop and boxing, and a picture of me and Chuck D came up. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, "We found our guy." <laughs> yeah, you know, they they were working with uh, Boudini's son, okay, uh, to you know to find the right person to write the book. And we did a conference call, and got to know each other a little bit, talked hip hop and talked boxing, mm-hmm. and I was lucky enough to get the gig. <laughs> Now I want to ask about uh, researching Bundini Brown because it's, he's just so—he's a mysterious guy. Like you know him, but you don't know him at the same time. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. What did you? Was it hard researching someone like him? Well, he is a very enigmatic figure. Yeah. He's always there, but in the shadows. I mean, yeah. You're correct about that. Yeah. So you know, when Hamilcar reached out to me to write this book, they had—they uh, had already contacted his son, Drew Brown III. And, they had offered him, uh, you know, the opportunity to be a consultant on the project. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I did the conference call, it was with the principal publishers at Hamilcar and also with Boudini's son. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had access to a treasure trove of Boudini artifacts. Wow. I had his dad's personal writings, his dad's poems. I had photographs. I had diary entries from his wife, Rona Palestine. I had, <laughs> you had everything. Jewelry. I got a, I traveled to Atlanta on several occasions and worked with his son, looking through all of the materials he had from his dad's life. Mm-hmm. So the research was there, real first-hand research where you got to touch the artifacts. Yeah. I had postcards from Ali, 
to Drew Brown the third. I had all this stuff at my disposal <laughs> beyond just reading you know, all the all the things that were written about Boudini and Sports Illustrated and magazine over the years. So it was a, it was a rare opportunity that I really got to uh, talk to some really interesting people. And through his son, I got to talk to you know George Foreman, Khalid Ali, Larry Holmes, Ernie Schaefer's, Tim Weatherspoon. All of these folks who knew Boudini pretty well, James mm-hmm. Quintillis, a host of ex-champions and you know, professional fighters. Right. Who, while researching this book, who did you find uh, someone, who, who's the most interesting person that you well, that, that you interviewed for this book? <laughs> uh, to be honest, the most interesting person was Drew Brown III. His son. Because the, ap- the apple didn't far, uh, fall far from the tree. No. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, you know, he was a, he's a born motivator. His son had an interesting life, too. Okay. Uh, his son was a first-generation college student like myself. Okay. His son was a college basketball player. His mm. son tried out for the Harlem Globetrotters and made wow. the first cut. Um, his son was a Navy jet pilot. <laughs> wow. Uh, he's a motivational speaker who wrote his own best-selling book back in the 80s. <laughs> so he had a very interesting life himself. Yeah. Uh, you know, and of course, he got to run around with Ali. Ali was his big so we had lots of stories. Oh my God. So he was probably the most interesting. Now the most exciting interview for me was talking to George Horn. I was about to say. <laughs> oh, you know, he's the oldest living heavyweight champion. What a legend. Yeah. And George is the nicest man in the world. He's just like you think he would be. He's That's very, so great. Nice. <laughs> um, so you're researching this book. Did you find, while you're researching this book, like, did you have anybody going like, why are you writing about Bundini Brown? Like, why don't you write about like Tyson or Ali or someone like <laughs> along that? Well, I would be lying to you if I didn't have people uh, inadvertently say negative things. Sometimes I bet. people would yeah. say, oh, I heard he's a drug addict. Or, oh, yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. sold Ali's belt. And, oh, mm-hmm. I heard he was a shady character. Like, mm-hmm. no one questioned the, the importance of the research. But actually, most people would say, wow, I can't believe there hasn't been a book on Mm-hmm. But they would often say those kind of things. And it was fun digging through his life story, and I tried my best to make him a man. I wanted to show him as a full, well-rounded character, mm-hmm. him as a father, as a husband, as a friend. I wanted to show his professional side. I wanted to show his childhood, mm-hmm. his wild sort of time in Harlem during his 20s. Yeah. I wanted to really give him a full life story beyond just some of the hyperbolic things that have been written about him in Sports <laughs> Illustrated. I feel like that's, first of all, that's real, you don't, because when we think of Bundini Brown, we always think of him in connection with Ali, but we don't realize that he lived like a full life before this. What in your research surprised you the most that you found out about him before he met Ali? Well, you got to remember, some people would say, wow, 21 years Mm -hmm. of being in the corner with Muhammad Ali, how amazing, he was there for the Liston fights, the Thriller in Manila, mm-hmm. Rumble in the Jungle, all the classic Ali fights when he was in the corner. But what they forget is that he was in the corner with Sugar Ray Robinson for seven yes. years prior to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and really, you sit down with a lot of casual boxing fans and say, who are your you know, top five greatest fighters ever? Or maybe the top five most important fighters ever? Mm-hmm. Sugar Ray and Ali, are, that would be on anyone's list. Yeah. They, they would maybe be one and two mm-hmm. on some people's lists. Um, and Boudini was the, the connective thread between the two. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to sort of bring up some of his time with Sugar Ray Robinson as well. And, you know, the question that drove my research was, how does a guy who never boxed as an amateur or a professional end up in the corner with Sugar Ray and the great Muhammad Ali? Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. So I tried to tell that story in the book. I want to ask you about Bundini Brown's relationship with Angelo Dundee. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think I remember reading Dundee, uh, Angelo Dundee's book, and he originally didn't want uh, Bundini Brown in the corner. He just thought of him. He, yeah, he quoted him. He thought he was just, quote, some nut or something. What, right. yeah, what did you find? Do you find, um, how do you think their relationship was? Well, that was one of the, the exciting parts of my research because mm-hmm. my dad was a trainer. Yes. And I used to work corners with my dad. Mm-hmm. And my dad liked the corner very quiet. Mm-hmm. He liked to be the only voice. In the corner when my father trained fighters, I was there to you know, do what I had to do, get the stool, get the spit bucket, do, take the mouthpiece, but he did the talking. Yeah. So I, I went into this research thinking, he probably drove Angelo crazy. Yeah, yeah, probably had a lot of friction. There's yeah. going to be a lot of dirt that I can pick up. <laughs> so I interviewed Jim Dundee, Angelo's son, and I, I really found out that they really grew to love each other uh, yeah. very much. Now, initially, when Ali brought him down to Miami, uh, you're right, Angelo was very resistant. Mm-hmm. He did think he was sort of out there and wacky and crazy. And, mm-hmm. But I think as the years went by, he started to realize give Ali something that he could not. And his son said this to me, that he watched Ali in the gym without him, and he watched him in the gym with him, and he realized that Houdini sort of charged Ali's batteries. Mm-hmm. He gave him an extra gear, an extra bit of motivation, you know, some pep, that maybe Angelo Dundee couldn't. He was more of an X's and O's trainer, yeah. old school boxing trainer. And I think as the years went by, he started to realize Houdini really did bring something to the table. Mm-hmm. Now, the only thing his son said to me was, there was occasions where they would almost knock each other over getting up the ring steps, both of them <laughs> trying to get to Ali first because they both loved him so much. Yeah. And he said that was really the only <laughs> He said sometimes that war of space, watching his dad mm-hmm. and Bugini race up the steps to get to Ali was sometimes comical. And, you know, yeah. that was kind of funny. But he really did grow to love Bugini. And their friendship spanned, you know, even whenever two, two and a half decades as well. Mm-hmm. They, they became close friends. Yeah. You know, Bundini, like the the way you describe him in your book and the way you're describing him right now, he's such like a friendly and cordial guy and a great father from um, from what you wrote. Uh, why do you think the perception of him was quite the opposite of that? You know. Well, it depends on who whose perception you're talking about. He can yeah. be very short with the media. Yes. You got to remember, here's a guy who didn't go to school beyond the second grade. Yeah. So he always felt like the media was trying to trick him or trip him up. And I actually told his son this. I said, your dad seems very grouchy <laughs> in interviews. Yeah. And he said that he always felt like when he was being videotaped and recorded, he felt like they were trying to trip up his words or they would use something he said against him. Mm-hmm. So he could be very grumpy with the media. Mm-hmm. And he didn't really love reporters. Um, other than Howard Cosell and a couple of those guys who he liked to drink with. <laughs> he wasn't a big fan of reporters and the media. So he could look that way. To, that, to outsiders. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I interviewed so many fans who traveled to Deer Lake, Pennsylvania to watch Ali train. And, you know, there were stories of Bundini giving folks the shirt off his back. And, <laughs> you know, he would welcome you in and just like you were part of the team, even if you were just a fan there for one day to see Ali, you know, hit the bag. Yeah. Um, he was sort of a, a guy of the people. But when it came to folks who had education or folks in the media or folks that he felt like had an agenda, he could be very grumpy. Yeah. A different kind of person. And you also have to remember, part of his job is to keep people away from Ali. Yeah. So a lot of the people I talked to had a bad first impression, but but it was because they wouldn't he wouldn't let them get to Ali. He right. was trying to see that sort of be the uh, the barrier to the champ. So mm-hmm. 
depends on who you're talking to. I mean, look, there's been a lot written about him. He loved to drink. Yeah. He loved women. He liked nightclubs. <laughs> um, I think his drug problems have been a little bit overblown and some of the, and exaggerated. He was a guy who liked to smoke marijuana. He liked to party. Wasn't on really the hard stuff. Uh, not a heroin user, as so that was suggested in the Michael Mann movie. That wasn't true. Uh, but he was a guy who, you know, he liked the nightlife. So, oh, he was a Muslim who, yeah. you know, he didn't eat pork, he didn't drink, he didn't smoke. So that that was a sort of an odd juxtaposition of their friendship. So in a lot of ways, I think part of Boudin's reputation is that we're blown because there he is with this sort of straight-laced, you know, disciplined Muslim man mm-hmm. who doesn't do any of the things Boudin does <laughs> in his free time. You mentioned something that I was going to hopefully bring up at the end, but you mentioned it, so we might as well talk about it now. I want to talk about Jamie Foxx's performance as Bundini Brown in the movie Ali. What do you, now that you've written the book, because I thought he did a really good job as Bundini Brown, but now that you've written the book, what do you what do you think of his performance? No, I think his performance is fantastic. I think mean, he's yeah. a wonderful actor. I think he's yes. one of the most talented uh, stars of our generation, to be mm-hmm. honest. He can sing, he can act, he's a comedian. Mm-hmm. I think he's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And really, most of the people who I talk to Close to Ali, did feel like he did a good job of representing mm-hmm. Boudini. Mm-hmm. Now, with that being said, there's just stuff in the movie that's not factually true. You mentioned the heroin. Yeah, it's not. I mean, a lot of the way they organize those stories is provably not true. Yeah. You know what I mean? The, the time sequence is completely off. Hollywood does that when they do biopics. Mm-hmm. And I do think he comes out on the negative end of a lot of stuff that just isn't factually true. Right. I don't think that's Jamie Foxx's fault. He didn't write the movie. He's got to deliver the lines they give him. But I will say this, reading Boudini's personal writings and talking to people that knew him really well, Boudini was a very spiritual person. Mm-hmm. He loved to talk about God. He, and he was a very serious person in some ways. And I think Jamie Foxx's portrayal sort of makes him look like a class clown, court jester kind of guy. Yeah. But if you read his poetry, you read his writings, and you read you know, uh, the transcripts and interviews out there, the people who knew him, they didn't necessarily see him that way. So I think that maybe be the one sort of uh, dramatic portrayal that isn't quite on, on point. Right. Okay, so let's touch back now on his drinking. Uh, would you, now that you've written this book on him, um, how did you, how do you think Ali and him got along with Ali being such an upstanding, doesn't drink or smoke, and but Nene Brown likes to enjoy the nightlife? How did those two things, you know, it doesn't quite seem like these two would be friends. It's true. Uh, they, were, they were alike in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. They had the same sense of humor and the same imagination, yes. the same kind of concept of God, believe it or not. Okay. But they were very different in their extracurricular activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ali was a womanizer too, obviously. Yes. He, liked, <laughs> he, had his, he had his vices. He just wasn't the same vices that you know, Boudini uh, succumbed to. Right. Uh, but as far as the drinking goes, it was a problem. And in the beginning, it was more of a problem to nation of Islam, who yeah. knew that he could potentially be bad influence on Ali. So at the beginning, they tried to get Boudini out of the picture for uh-huh. a variety of reasons. One, he's a black man married to a white Jewish woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Two, uh, he's a drinker. And three, Boudini would challenge Ali on some of the teachings of the nation of Islam in regard <laughs> to race. And that became a friction point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, his drinking was a problem. Boudini would try to hide it from Ali mm-hmm. when they were away from camp. He would, you know, There's lots of famous stories of Boudini trying to hide his drinking from Ali. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as far as what I could gather in the research, this is what Kali Ali told me. Uh, she, she basically said that when Ali was training, Boudin was sober, focused, always on point. He was the guy who woke Ali up for road work. 
he was never sloppy drunk or a mess during training. But in between fights, he would sometimes fall off the wagon. Right. And it was that downtime in between training camps, that downtime in between fights that sometimes he would get himself in trouble. He had too much free time or too much cash in his pocket. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about his uh, Bonini Brown's life after Ollie, because um, yeah. you know it's almost like the you know the the train end the the right ends you know after the Trevor Burdick yeah. fight. Um, I remember you know those last two fights were oof. really you know sort of sad moments in Ollie's career. He's already starting to show the effects of Parkinson's, mm-hmm. you know, and he takes a beating versus Holmes and Trevor Burdick. Yeah, but Bonini has a little bit of luck after boxing. Uh, if you remember, he was in those Shaft movies in the 1970s, <laughs> and they were wildly popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he played Willie, the gangster from Harlem, okay. and he was a reoccurring character on the Shaft movies. Those opportunities got him other acting opportunities, so he was in six feature films. And didn't he play himself in the Ali movie? He, yeah, he and Ali are the only two who played themselves. <laughs> he plays himself in the greatest. Uh, you know, a lot of the other characters are replaced by actors. Right. Uh, Boudini goes on to do some B-level movies as well. And he also has a cameo with Steven Spielberg's The Color Purple. Wow. He has a scene with Oprah Winfrey and Whoopi Goldberg. Mm-hmm. Um, and Quick Tillis, who he was training at the time, plays uh, yeah. Oprah's boyfriend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, Boudini was having a little bit of luck in Hollywood. And I think at the time of his death, he was living in Los Angeles. He was, you know, he was wanting to pursue more of those opportunities. He was okay. wanting to make it in the movies. Mm-hmm. Um, for someone who had no formal training and couldn't read on an adult level, it's pretty impressive, yeah. you know, to work with Spielberg and <laughs> to be with, you know, Gordon Parks and all these famous directors. Um, you know, so he had that going for him, and he also trained James Quintillis for, I think, three fights <laughs> did, um, for a brief period of time, and Boudini was the head trainer in those training camps. And did, wasn't Angela you know, Dundee, wasn't Angela Dundee training Quintillis as well? Yeah, and actually... Mm-hmm. They had a they had a tiff they had a falling out and yeah. uh, Boudini replaced Angelo. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so yes, that's correct. Um, but the sad thing is, the drinking you brought that up earlier really started to catch up with him post Ali. You know, you I think his best friend is really starting to feel sick from Parkinson's. He's, you know, things are changing. The money isn't there like it was, uh, and his drinking problem really started to spiral out of control. Yeah. In the, 80s, and that's where we start to see Boudini um, you know, hit, hit rock bottom, so to speak. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you uh, about <laughs> this is going to be great. why don't why aren't there any more Bundini Browns in boxing now? You know what I mean? Like, why isn't there any more hype mans? In bo- like, there's they're not as known or something. Is that... They're not as known, but they're there. They're you there. remember Mike Tyson in his second reincarnation had Crocodile? Yes. Bark all those things. Yonke Wilder had a similar guy in the early part of his career, too. I can't remember. His name escapes me. Oh, no. Way. But, you know, he, they would show him on those Showtime All Access shows, and they would have under his name Hype Man. <laughs> <laughs> there are guys like that in boxing. Trust me. Uh, my dad had a guy in our gym. His name was Jeff Dean, and we called him Boudini Dean. <laughs> and, and this was before I ever wrote the book. This was back in the 90s. Wow. Um, so, you know, every gym's got a Boudini, but no one is Boudini at the same time. He was someone who almost stole the show uh, in some ways. And, you know, I think Tim Witherspoon said this to me. It's probably the best way I could put it. There was never a Boudini before him, and there has never been one since. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think if he did nothing else but coin float like a butterfly, sting mm-hmm. like a bee, 
You're done. You're set. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're the guy. And, you know, Boudini did trademark that. So he did make some money off that, too. Mm. Uh, so, you know, Boudini, you know, he was the street poet in Ali's Corner, the poet Lurietta of Muhammad Ali's Corner. And he was such a great sidekick that he even shows up when Ali faces Superman in that comic book. Uh, Boudini's <laughs> in there, too, fighting aliens. <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't know that. So you think, what a life. He yeah. worked with he worked with Gordon Parks, he worked with Ali, he worked with Sugar Ray, and he fought Superman. How cool. <laughs> <laughs> How cool was that, you know? I think For a guy who grew up in Little Sanford, Florida, yeah. in some really horrible circumstances. I mean, you grew up in Sanford, Florida at a time where the Ku Klux Klan was still, you know, terrorizing people in the community in Seminole mm-hmm. County. Uh, for a young black boy who didn't have his, uh, you know, parents there with him much of his life, mm-hmm. couldn't read beyond a second grade level, he did pretty good for himself. <laughs> Uh, I want to, really quick before you, I want to ask you, <laughs> one of the most surprising things about your book is that we learned what a great father Bundini Brown was, because yeah. I didn't, I gotta be honest with you, I didn't even know he had kids. <laughs> um, was that, what, what, what do you think made him such a great father? You know what's interesting is that he wasn't great in some ways. Right? Oh, I mean, there's a, there's a story in the book where, you know, uh, his son goes to University of New Mexico, mm-hmm. and he needs some money for tuition. And Boudini asked Ali for the money, and Ali gave it to Boudini, and Boudini blew the money. Oof. And then his son had to ask, "Where's the money, Dad? I, you know, I got to turn it in." So he had to go back and ask Ali again for the money. <laughs> and you know, his son begrudgingly said to me, "Hey, Ali paid for my freshman year twice because <laughs> <laughs> of my dad." And it caused a problem between the father and son. So in some ways, he would let his son down. Mm-hmm. You know, he was away a lot. His 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 wife Rhoda divorced after a couple years of marriage and there were years he was away with Sugar Ray or away with Ali. He wasn't always home. But with that being said, I don't think he could have loved his son any more than he did. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you read their back and forth exchanges to each other, mm-hmm. if you really dig into his uh, interviews, uh, he was someone very proud of his son. Yeah. See, Ali had a fear of flying. My, fl- my son flies jet planes. You're afraid to ride on them. <laughs> <laughs> and he was so proud of his son. He loved his son. He was so proud that his son went to college. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone I talked to in the family said, he would say, my boy went to college. And he would say it with this big enunciation. You know, you'd put some, you know, extra feeling on the word college. Mm-hmm. He was very proud of his son. And he would always tell him, much like my dad did me as a young man, he would say, you're going to be the educated Drew. You're going to be the college Drew. Because, okay. you know, Drew Brown was a junior. There was a bunch of Drew Browns in the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he would say, you're, you're the educated Drew. You're going to be the, the smart Drew. And, you know, he wanted his son to have a better life than him. Mm-hmm. And I think one of my favorite stories from the book is when he got home from uh, Sugar Ray training camp one time, his little boy said, Dad, I want to be like Sugar Ray. And he started getting up and boxing in the living room. And he said, no, I don't want you carrying spit buckets. You're going to go to college. You're going to be smart. You're going to be educated. You're not going to let people trick you up with not being able to read like they do me mm-hmm. and that's a good dad that's a good dad who really loves his son he could have easily said you're going to be a trainer like me and he could have rode his dad's coattails mm-hmm. but uh he was a good father in some ways and flawed mm-hmm. like the rest of us and others you know it's funny i interviewed oh, i can't remember his name the guy who wrote the uh, uh joe frazier book um that just came out what's his name i can't remember. mark cram jr i believe oh yeah that's correct. Yeah, yes. I've, I've got the book. I've read a couple chapters. It's pretty good. So good. And I actually interviewed him, and we talked about Joe Frazier. 
and uh, you know, was, you know, there's some parts in the book where we talk about uh, spoilers, I guess, where Joe Frazier yeah. cheated on his wife, and we talked about that, and he had the best quote. He's like, you know, I know very few perfect men, or I know no per- perfect men, and I think Drew Bandini Brown is definitely <laughs> falls into that category. Um, no, I, he I think I think so. And look, when you read the the notes he was in his son, mm-hmm. they're 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 touching. He loved his boy, mm-hmm. and he and he did help his son a lot. And yeah. I remember when his son was going to college, he had George Plimpton write one of his recommendation letters. Really? <laughs> was, yeah. So you know, oh. he was always working. You know, him and Plimpton were drinking buddies. So he was always <laughs> paper line. That George here. Plimpton. <laughs> yeah, right. Wow. That's a pretty good one, right? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but that's the thing is that. Wife Rhoda, mm-hmm. you know, they had a very unconventional marriage. You got to think Rhoda's family were Orthodox Jews from Brighton Beach, New York. Right. And she was sort of this wild, you know, sort of rebel of the family. Mm-hmm. You would sneak off to Harlem and she met Boudini in a jazz club and they were listening to Miles Davis. Uh-huh. So they sort of had this, you know, they got married much too young. Mm-hmm. Both were kind of wild and, you know, unconventional. So the marriage wasn't your traditional, you know, uh, Kind of, kind of nuclear family that you would see on TV, right? But they loved each other too, and they had a, a lifelong relationship as well. Even <laughs> after their divorce, they were there for their son. So it was touching to read some of that. See Boudini outside the the lens of just Ali's hype man or his sidekick. Right. Okay. Uh, so, do you think there'll ever be a movie just on Boudini Brown? Is that a possibility? Maybe one day. I mean, there's been some talk yeah. where people came to. My publisher talking about the idea of turning it into a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, look, I, th- I think the appeal is you got a kid born into the Jim Crow South. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have that sort of historical narrative there as well. And Sanford, Florida, of course, is where Jackie Robinson sort of ran out of town. Yeah. It was the site where Trayvon Martin was murdered in 2012. I think opening the, the movie with his life in Sanford could be very interesting. Mm-hmm. And following his life, his time in the Navy, time in Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. I mean, he piled around with uh, you know, Miles Davis and some pretty important people at the time. Yeah. And then, of course, you follow that through his time with Sugar Ray and Ali. That spans the Civil Rights, the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Uh, heck of a movie, wouldn't it? I would <laughs> love to see that movie. A lot of American history there. And, mm-hmm. You know, he's a, flaw, he's a great character to write about because you can love him one minute and be so frustrated with him the next. <laughs> I think those make the best characters. Those people can they remind us of our own flaws. Oh, yeah. Who, perfection's the worst, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, nobody wants to watch a movie about it. That's why a lot of biographies aren't very good. Yeah. They just gloss over everything. Mm-hmm. I tried really hard to show his demons, but also show what made him special. Yeah. Ali was no dummy. You wouldn't have kept him around for 21 years yeah. if he was useless. He wouldn't right. have done that. All right. Uh, so, any future projects you have going on? Any ideas? Any, you know, possible? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually about to finish up the initial draft of the manuscript. Uh, as of right now, it's titled Beatboxing, How Hip-Hop Changed the Fight Game. Uh, and it's going to come out through Hamilcar in hopefully November 2021. Okay. I interviewed some of the greatest rappers of all time, mm-hmm. talking about their love of boxing. And I've, t- I've interviewed, I think, 25 world champions talking about how hip-hop impacted their childhood and training and their lives. So I'm trying to tell the story of how hip-hop changed professional boxing mm-hmm. and how those cultures have been some ways from Ali on always been intertwined so it's been a wild project I've got to talk to a lot of my childhood you know heroes I talked to Big Daddy Kane last week <laughs> so yeah we're having fun I talked to most of the Wu-Tang guys we're having fun it's uh 
very proud of it. Still, still putting, putting the finishing touches on it. But hopefully, November November third, I think, is what they're saying next year. Is Tyson in the book? <laughs> Tyson is in the book quite okay. a bit. <laughs> yes. yes. You know, Mike Tyson was a huge uh, figure, and actually, one of the rappers who I interviewed, Inspector Deck from Wu Tang. Yeah. He argued that Mike Tyson was uh, boxing. I believe hip hop's first champion. I mean, mm. that they viewed him as a hip hop figure. Okay. But uh, his connection to Brownsville and the way in which he, uh, like, you know, he, he wins the title in '86, I believe. That's mm-hmm. when hip hop really is in its golden era. Yeah. So really. In some ways, the story begins with Tyson. Now he brought uh, hip hop into the boxing arena. Okay. All right. Uh, well, Mr. Snyder, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Before you go, I have sure. I have a few questions here that I've had to that I've asked every boxing champion that's been on this podcast. Now I've had to readjust them a bit because you're not you're not a world champion boxer. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I've had to read. I can't ask you where's the greatest place you brought your championship belt. Like that's. <laughs> Um, <laughs> All right, let's hear it. Okay. Uh, question one. What is a dream fight that you would like to have make, that you would like to make? In, in boxing today. Yeah, in boxing today, or just in the past, whatever. Two great fighters from the past, whatever. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll stick to today, because, okay. uh, when, you know, doing the research for beatboxing, mm-hmm. I ask these rappers, what's the fight you want to see? Every rapper I've talked to, almost every single one has said Crawford versus Spence. Uh, uh, so there's a real need people to see that fight so i think really you know right now i would love to see terrence crawford and errol spence maybe even more than that i would love to see tfimo and tank davis i think mm-hmm. that would be a really exciting fight uh you know what makes spence you know what makes spence crawford really interesting is that i think both those guys don't like the other one i think oh, it's a real yeah there's real <laughs> hatred there real yeah. animosity. i think they would come in there doing everything they could do to win yeah and neither guy would want to lose to the other yeah uh, you know, if I could pick one today, Crawford Spence is the fight I'm buying a ticket to. I want to see that. Fight. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because all the rappers I talked to for this project all said Crawford Spence, <laughs> like unanimously almost. A couple people said Joshua Fury, but almost everyone I talked to said Spence Crawford. So well, I mean, like, that's the biggest fight in Europe, <laughs> I think, to make. Right, right. I mean, look, I would, I'm excited for that too. Yeah. But Crawford Spence would be a pick-up fight. I mean, yeah. It would be fun to argue about who you think. I like fights where you don't you don't quite even trust your own opinion. Yeah. That's the kind of fights I like to watch. And I think Crawford Spence is one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe TFEMO Tank down the road would be yeah. another one of those type of fights. It would be really really interesting to see how that would go. I think the what makes that fight between Crawford Spence really quick uh, so interesting is that it reminds, at least it reminds me, a lot of Leonard Hearns in a, in a very sure. interesting way. I think that's what sure. it is. Two great fighters in their prime. Well, three. My gut, my gut reaction says Crawford wins, but then, you know, I could change, you could change my opinion on that. <laughs> I mean, they're both fantastic. It would be fun to watch. Really quick, uh, Crawford is from my uh, dad's hometown, Omaha, Nebraska, like right across the river. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he's kind of like really, per- like personally, I have a lot at stake. And Crawford, yeah. um, and I've actually seen Terrence Crawford at a at a hotel uh, boxing fight once before he was the yeah, champ. Cool. Before he was the champ, you know, I, being from West Virginia, I was talking to JDs about this. Uh, Deontay's trainer, mm-hmm. being from somewhere that's not a traditional boxing place, you yeah. kind of root for guys who are from non-boxing cities. The guys who are not yes. in LA, New or York, New York, like Philly. I kind of always rooted for Crawford for that reason. Just like I kind of in the early days rooted for Deontay being from Tuscaloosa. So, oh, I still root for Deontay. Yeah, you know, I mean, he's definitely, 
experience of wild stuff right now. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I root for those guys who are right. not from traditional boxing places because I came from a similar environment. All right. Uh, next question. Uh, what's the best fight that you've ever seen? Yeah. You know, uh, the best fight I've ever watched in person, mm-hmm. or at least the best atmosphere, was Cotto versus Junior back in 2007. I was at the Garden okay. for that. Oh, nice. And I think it still has the record for the biggest biggest gate in Madison Square Garden boxing history. Uh, it was on the eve of the Puerto Rican Day Parade. Okay. It was a wild atmosphere. <laughs> Just really fun. I mean, the crowd was packed with, with celebrities and rappers. Um, nice. That was a that was a really fun fight to be at as Abjuna versus Miguel Cotto. Okay. Uh, as far as being in person, that's the one that I would root for the most. Right. What about watching on TV? Is there any fights that stand out the most? Well, you know the Gotti Ward fights. It's hard. Right. You know, it doesn't get much better than that as far as like great action fights. Yeah. Those Gotti Ward fights were so much fun back mm-hmm. in the day. Uh, you know, that's the easy answer, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next question. Uh, who? Would you? What fighter would you have liked? Would you like to write about one day? If like, could you see yourself one day being like, oh, maybe him or her? Oh, that's a that's a great that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think Christy Martin has a book in the works, obviously, because you got the movie and everything. Yeah. But if I could have written about anyone, it would have been Christy, only because uh, <laughs> West Virginia. My first book was actually a book on uh, Appalachian culture. Mm-hmm. You know, being from West Virginia. I think I'd be uniquely qualified because I come from the same streets that she comes from. Right. Grew up, you know, grew up in a very similar environment. I'm super happy for Christy. Uh, you know, she's a dear friend. But that's maybe the one I would have been the most qualified to write is Christy's book. <laughs> can I actually let me? Can I actually throw out a name that I think kind of deserves maybe a book about them? That's it. And I think would, uh, I think it would be really interesting. What about Bob Arum? That guy's been in boxing. Oh my gosh. Forever, <laughs> he yeah. has. You know, really, the the kind of books that I've written thus far. My first book was a memoir called Twelve Rounds of Most Jews. It was about mm-hmm. my dad's boxing club, mm-hmm. and it was kind of a book about the lowest level of boxing, yeah. like what it means to fight in armories and high school gyms and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, Brandini is a book about a, a hype man who's sitting in the shadows. Yeah, beatboxing is sort of looking at hip hop from the uh, hip hop and boxing from the street level. And then, how, how guys get to where they are in life. And then a Bob Aaron uh, book would be like from the highest level. <laughs> exactly. Where, you, you, you beat me to it. Bob yeah. Aaron would be at the tip of the mountain. Yeah. It would be interesting to think of the life he's lived. He has like all the dirt. <laughs> he knows all the secrets. He, he knows you know all what, the... I talked to a lot of high-level boxing people doing Houdini, and sometimes they would say to me, uh, they need to pay me not to do the book because I've got dirt on everybody. <laughs> Gene Kilroy said that to me. Oh, that's great. Pay me not to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then one final question. Uh, it's not really uh, – yeah, it's a question. Uh, advice for young writers out there. Um, what What do you think uh, – what do you think what, – what would you like to give to writers just starting out that are very unsure about themselves and where they want to go forward? I think the best advice anyone ever gave me was to write about what you love mm-hmm. because when you write about what you love, you do so much better and mm-hmm. you put so much more into it. Uh, when I first got my job as an English professor, you know, I had my first office with a big window and everything, and I decorated the office in black and white boxing photographs. And one of my colleagues walked in my office and said, "Oh my gosh, you must love boxing." And I, you know, I told him about my backstory. And they said, "Well, what have you written about boxing?" I said, "Well, no, I'm not really a boxing writer." And they said, well, "Wow, you would be a really good one." It seems like, and it's like the light bulb went off. I thought, "Why am I not writing about boxing?" <laughs> <laughs> I grew up basically in a 
changed my writing career. It, it led to the path that brought me to Houdini. So I would, my advice to writers would be follow what you love. Write about what you love, what you know, because you write about it from a perspective that's unique, and people love hearing unique perspectives. Right. Uh, really quick before we get you out of here, you said you're a college professor. Have any of your students read your book, and do you fail them if they give you a bad review? <laughs> you know, uh, I don't talk about my work in class much because I don't want to come off as pretentious or right. anything. But sometimes college students like that, you know, these kids grow up in the social media age. They snoop around and find stuff about you. Right. So, yeah, on occasion I'll have usually a young man will come to me and say, hey, man, I heard you write about boxing. I love boxing. My dad got me into it as a kid. And sometimes they'll read my books and, you know, give me their report. Uh, but usually I don't talk about it much. I'm, you know, I teach writing and speech classes. And, you know, most of the time boxing is not a part of what we're talking about. And right. occasionally I'll have a young guy who, Sneaks around and finds out what I do on the side. That's kind of fun. <laughs> I like how you put, like, you write these national books. It's like, I write, do it on the side. Really, I'm a professor. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Uh, it's almost just like you're moonlighting as a bouncer. <laughs> <laughs> it, does, it does sound that way when you phrase it that way. Yeah. Here's the thing, you know, my job as a professor is what, you know, keep my family and what, you know, allows me to be able to have the free time to do this other kind of work. So I feel That's like great. when I'm writing these books like Boudini, this is a passion. This is something I would do. Uh, almost for free because yeah. I love it that much and getting to talk to George Foreman I mean geez who wouldn't want to do that so that's great. it doesn't feel like work and I, I guess that's my other advice to young writers is when you're writing about what you love it doesn't feel like work and you, you get up every day ready to do it alright uh, the book is Bundini Don't Believe the Hype uh, Mr. Snyder, Todd Snyder thank you so much for being a guest when I you know, when I name a podcast the Robodeau Podcast I have to have as many Ollie people around <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you so much and good luck with the snow, man. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, keep up the good work. I'm trying. All right. Have a good rest of your day, man. Thanks, man. Thank you. All right. That was Todd Snyder, author of Bundini Brown, Don't Believe the Hype. And that's another episode of the Robodeau Podcast. Please follow us on Instagram, please, at Robodeau Podcast. Please follow us on Facebook. Please listen to us on SoundCloud, on Spotify, and on Anchor, all on Robodeau Podcast. All right, my name's Gene Morgan. That was a lot of fun. You guys out there, have a great rest of your day. Stay warm if you're on the East Coast. It's really cold out there. And we'll be back, hopefully, in the new year. All right, have a good one. Bye.